0: Welcome to the Live Lightly podcast, awareness to integration to elevation. Sue and Dan open intimate and complex spaces together, discussing integration from physical, emotional, and spiritual levels. Expect conversations that are honest, expansive, and solution-oriented. Everything from
1: consciousness design, to biohacking, to socio-political deep dives, creative works, and building a new paradigm in relationship through daily choices. Check out the
0: show notes for more info about Sue and Dan, plus our guests.
1: This week on the Live Lightly podcast, Sue sits down with Ruby Warrington, who is the creator of the term Sober Curious. Author of the 2018 book of the same title, her work has spearheaded a global movement to reevaluate our relationship to alcohol. Other works include Material Girl, Mystical World 2017, and the Numinous Astro Deck. Ruby's also an astrologer and the founder of Numinous Books. I published with Numinous Books this year, and Ruby was my main editor on Transitory Nature, Breaking Binaries for Integrated Being. And over the course of the year, we developed a deep creative relationship and friendship, and I was so excited to interview her this week on the Live Lightly podcast. All right. Let's get right into it.
0: Welcome to this week's Live Lightly podcast. And I have the honor of sitting down with Ruby Warrington for this week's conversation. And she is the author of two books, uh, one of which I loved. Actually, I loved both. I just read your first one though, after I read your second one. Yeah. Because I think Sober Curious, your second one is like what beautifully codified language for, I think, the internal dialogue for so many people, if they registered on the addiction spectrum or not. And Mm -hmm. first off, before we get into Mystical World Material Girl, I want to ask you about what does it feel like to see the word sober curious just everywhere now?
2: As a lifelong lover of words and a wordsmith and somebody who always, you know, throughout my journalism career, my greatest pleasure came from kind of crafting headlines and attention grabbing sort of ways of talking about concepts it is one of the most deeply gratifying experiences of my professional life to see the way that that term has just kind of like captured the public imagination to the extent that it has the fact that with two words just two words this is my mercury and aries I'm like if we can (laughs) say it in less words let's do it (laughs) Mm -hmm. two words that speak so clearly to such a broad spectrum of individuals and such a broad spectrum of experiences when it comes to substance use, abuse, et cetera. Um, yeah, that to me is like job really well done. You know, mm-hmm. I'm really, really thrilled and not just for my own professional gratification, but because I know how much permission it's given people to just explore
0: and ask questions that perhaps might have felt off limits before. hmm Definitely. I mean, it is such a doorway in into a very intense topic, you know, addiction and sobriety. It's so intense that often many of us don't really want to touch it or look at it in a very intimate way, even though it can be one of the topics or inner inquiries that just blows the lid off our understanding of who we are and how we interface with the world. So like, it's kind of like a dip the toe in and then you get a, you get a second to dip the toe in and then you get to dive in. Yes. Yeah. Which I loved about the book. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I think it's such a, it's this huge subject and area for personal inquiry, personal discovery, personal development, personal growth. It's kind of like, it's actually really low hanging fruit because it actually touches all of our lives. It's right there in front of us. And yet it's been so taboo and so um, shameful to talk about addiction for so long. That I don't think it has, been, it has been thought about in that way outside of very specific, often very enclosed recovery spaces Yes, where, you yes. know, now that I know, I know so much more about recovery rooms, 12-step programs, rehabs, et cetera, et cetera, I now know that what goes on behind closed doors is deep, deep, deep personal spiritual work. I wasn't aware of that because I never thought it was for me. Mm-hmm. And now, um, yeah, I'm obviously very aware that addressing how we use substances, particularly something like alcohol, which is we pick it up to change the way we feel, <laughs> to change who we are on some level.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a
2: huge, huge, rich area for personal discovery when we start to look at that.
0: Yeah. I think one thing that was really relevant in the book to sort of double down on what you were just saying about change the way we feel it also felt like some of the lines of questioning that you were presenting are also like we can be a little bit of someone else when we put on this disguise you know or that we feel or all the marketing that's coming at us especially as women which I wrote some sentences down of things that you are highlighting in particular about alcohol marketing towards women that we get to be somebody else or a b- better version of ourselves or desire fulfillment to use your words or I laughed out loud when you were like self-actualization <laughs> I was like yeah through tequila shots totally that makes sense
2: <laughs> but like this the kind this kind of idealized like extroverted cool girl party self Mm-hmm. that many of us have been taught is what will get us love, attention, affection. Like, yeah, we can actualize that part of ourself through tequila shots at what, with what
0: consequences though, you know, at mm-hmm. what cost? Yes. Yes. And maybe we could just touch on the cost like personally for you. I'll chime in a little bit too, because it's also been a journey of mine with substances and, you know, what really, I know in the book, you're like, clear mind, I woke up having to pee, and I didn't have a headache. Like, those are all very tangible things. And then on a bigger level, you saw this parallel currents in your life of more spirituality entering and more connection to the divine as less abuse of substances in sort of an unconscious way was happening.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's sort of, um, I almost don't like it, talking about these and I, and I do for more in more mainstream conversations perhaps, but like talk about, you know, the benefits of quitting drinking, I guess talking here, I might talk about like, yeah, the avenues of discovery through quitting drinking. I don't think for somebody who considered myself a kind of normal social drinker, didn't ever consider my drinking to be problematic because it looked like the kind of drinking that everybody else was doing, even though it was very excessive. I now can see, um, just there, these sort of, there have been layers, I suppose. The first layer is physical, right? Yeah. No hangovers. That feels great. Oh yeah. What All my, my gut problems cleared up overnight? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm sleeping through the night. So I have so much more energy, so much more focus, so much more clarity. Then beyond that, the mental kind of benefits i suppose you know like oh just more clarity of mind more attention to detail more focus less anxiety more awareness of the things that cause me anxiety and the actions i can take to kind of move past that and then perhaps third level the emotional like oh here's some of the here's actually some clarity around all of the dots that join up all the way back to incidences in my childhood, which kind of help me explain why I act this way. I do, why I feel the way I do in certain situations, how I came to believe certain things about myself in the world. There's just, I suppose clarity is like the major difference, just really being able to see the wholeness of my life and my experience from childhood to now. And like I said, kind of join up all those dots as to like, where so many of my disordered or dysfunctional beliefs behaviors self-beliefs stemmed from and with that clarity and that kind of holistic overview effect of my entire life experience which you know the alcoholic fog kind of having lifted has revealed to me i'm then able to do some really sort of like targeted proactive work around looking at these things healing these things and actually changing some of my thinking some of my behaviors going forward which I mean that's like by no means like an overnight one and done process that's like that's the life's work Mm -hmm. as we know many of us who are sort of on this path Um, but now I feel like I actually have access to the real meat of that work whereas before I was perhaps aware of it I was aware that things weren't right. I was aware that things weren't connecting. I was aware that I was minimizing parts of myself and kind of forcing myself to, forcing other parts of myself to perform. But now I can kind of, now I feel like I have access to all of it mm-hmm. and can actually really engage with my inner work and my work in the world in just a much more authentic and holistic way.
0: Yeah, that's so beautiful. And you kind of alluded to the idea that it was a sequential process of growing clarity. So over mm-hmm. time, did you find when you weren't reaching for a substance to be this particular version of self or to cope with something uncomfortable within you, that then once that hit the surface, it was like, oh shit, I, I have to have additional, an additional emotional coping pattern now since I can't right. go do the old one. You know, right. so now all of a sudden, like a whole nother level of clarity starts to come forth. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So
2: yes, it's like I need additional ways to grapple additional new solutions for these kind of issues that I may be grappling with. But also I need new ways of being. I need new activities. I need new community that actually does mirror and reflect and support the person I, I really am, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of boundaries, lots of work, boundary work, um, lots of, um, yeah, discernment work, mm-hmm. you know, what's really for me and what yeah. am I trying to, what would I like to be for? What would the world like me to believe is for me, which actually is not part of my path. Yeah.
0: Discernment work. This is, yeah, <laughs> this is big. <laughs> Yeah, huge. Especially when you're not trying to, again, have the low-hanging fruit of old emotional patterns be showing up in your inbox, showing up on your little text message screen, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one thing Mm -hmm. that you said, I think it's like chapter three or four that, you know, sometimes we drink to be like edgy and cool, but in the reality of it, it's upholding social norms, you know? And I was like, uh... Can get down with that, you know, and really understanding that it is kind of sold to us in certain ways of like, this is cool. This is uh, anti disestablishment in a way. Like, I'm going to get hammered and fuck the man. You know, there's like all these narratives around why drinking is socially accepted you know, especially when you're younger, I feel like that's a really strong doorway in. And then you realize one day you wake up, everyone around you is doing it. So how anti-disestablishment is it really? Exactly. We often
2: use alcohol as a way to rebel and like, fuck the system and I'm going to be my own person. And like, you can't tell me what to do. Um, but actually the truly rebellious thing in a world that is what I call a dominant drinking society is to not, I actually did an episode of my podcast recently with somebody who was very into the kind of straight edge movement when she was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And for her not drinking was the act of rebellion because it was so much the norm, but it makes me think about like, it's that kind of prescribed rebellion, particularly again for women. It's I watched um, the, there's a new document, documentary that just came out on Woodstock 99 I don't know if you know anything about this but it was like a revival of the original Woodstock festival but it turned into a riot basically
1: yeah
0: (laughs) Um, I was gonna guess a
2: shit show really fast it turned (laughs) into a shit show really really fast and a lot of it was sort of talking about how that period in time there was a real backlash to the 90s kind of feminist riot girl kind of movement which had morphed kind of it had sort of shaped feminist and feminine rebellion into this kind of girls gone wild parody of like feminine empowerment, which was all about like getting your top off and like being sexually liberated, but actually that leading to a lot of assault. And yeah, there's just that, that kind of girls gone wild mentality around the kind of rebellious drinking that I think I certainly grew up against that backdrop. Like, you know, Alcohol is going to, is going to make you wild and sexually promiscuous. And actually
0: it's not necessarily empowering at all, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, to sort of double back, it obviously reduces our ability to discern, you know, chemically, right. And that discernment and contemplation is sort of the stepping stone to empowerment. Right. But definitely sold as women's liberation and you highlight this as that's actually sort of, in, in the guise of toxic masculinity, Mm -hmm. drink more, be free, be like out there, do what you want to do, wear what you want, all that kind of stuff. But with impaired judgment, with impaired judgment (laughs) and within a society that
2: still is largely, you know, very patriarchal and oppressive to women and particularly women's sexuality.
0: Mm hmm. Yes, definitely. I thought that that section in the book of sexual abuse and drinking is really well researched, which is one of the reasons that um, really I found you because you don't just put your opinion and without any subtext, you know, it's like a bit of why you got interested in the topic and then a lot of really amazing research around that topic and, and how that threads through the fabric of society. Right. So, you know, I think that that was really well done and sober curious, particularly with rape culture and abuse and -hmm. drinking.
2: I mean, my background is journalism. So I always have, and even as a kid, I've always had that very curious inquiring kind of a mind. I was talking to my husband the other day and I was like, yeah, I'm a doc joiner. That's kind of like my special skill. I'm a doc joiner, you know, and I've always been very much this, very much an observer. You know, like the one in the group who will kind of not be saying much, but listening intently and then chime in with a, ah, oh, this links to this. See what's going on there? That mm-hmm. kind of a, that's sort of my MO. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, that I bring that to all my, all the subjects that I now am writing about. So
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, I'm glad that you enjoyed that section. It was really hard to write because I didn't want to come across as being judgmental because that's another thing. Like I really, um, I wanted to make the whole sober curious conversation again, not about like there's a right or a wrong here. This is truly about you discerning what is the right, the best path for you, the most supportive, the most empowering path Mm -hmm. for you, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, both you and Bess helped me with transitory nature so much with the one liner header, but I think you you, (laughs) like sober curious has them every other Paragraph. Basically, you know, I think that section was like conquering FOMO or something, yeah. which kind of makes you laugh out loud to begin with, you know, and then it gets really serious, but then it makes you laugh. So there's like a lot of emotional play there. I think instead, I didn't read it as judgment at all. I read it more as like bouncing between emotions. Like, oh, that's weird. Oh, that's funny. You know, that <laughs> kind of thing. It's life, right? That's life.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Bouncing between the emotions. Something else. You discover we're all doing all the time, like a pinball machine <laughs> yeah. when we're not, when we're not masking or,
0: or manipulating how we feel with substances. Mm-hmm, totally. I think another brilliant quote in the book too was, uh, I think it was Dorothy Parker, two drinks I'm under the table, three drinks I'm under the host. Uh huh. That I thought is such a great understanding of the depiction of alcoholism in our culture and that it, it can look very particular for you and maybe it is only two drinks. And that's something I grappled with a lot early on. Mm-hmm. My mom took me to AA, an AA meeting at like our community church when I was 17. And I weirdly felt more comfortable there than I did at a high school party, you know, with all these people that look so much different, differently around me, you know, but I was like, I'm not an alcoholic mom. I just like have some beers with my friends, you know, but there was a serious problem with all the water in my chart and just sort of morphing Mm. into what everybody else is doing. But Mm. that sentence quote made me laugh out loud. Like, why don't we have that conversation more, which I know that is part of the mission of sober curious, but to understand more of what substance abuse looks like for you instead of the narratives culturally that sometimes separate us from our truth. That is icky and we don't want to touch it.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like some people would often say to me, but you didn't have a problem. You don't have a drinking problem. Like define, can you just define problem for me, please? Because I think I should be the one to decide if, if my alcohol consumption is causing me problems. Like I'm the only one who's inside my head obsessing over whether I could have two drinks or whether that's going to like completely derail me for the next day. I mean, I don't sleep, but yeah, Mm -hmm. maybe it's only two drinks. That might not look like a problem, but the level of obsession and the actual physical physiological impact of two drinks for me was extremely problematic, you know? And yes, I had, (laughs) there was a there were periods when I was drinking much, much, much higher volumes. Um, But I feel like, you know, embarking on my healing path (laughs) for want of better terminology, which is documented in my first book, Material Girl Mystical World, I'd really begun to sensitize myself to myself, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and during that process and in large part as a result of that process, or hand in hand, had really become much more sensitized and much more aware of the true impact that alcohol was having on not just my physiological body, but also on my psyche, my self-esteem, my emotional well-being. And the the compound effect of that was just not worth even trying to keep it in my life anymore, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of a a great bridge point because as I was reading the books back and forth, I was thinking about sort of the intro of the first book and wondering, as you got more access to sober circles, it sort of started to fall away naturally. And then the really deep inquiry on sober curious popped up. And I think that's one of the Um, question marks. I see it in connect to spirit a lot too as well. you know, My partner smokes weed and we do it together or we always go out and I drink with my family or we drink at holidays that you're afraid that you're going to lose connections. And then where are the other connections that aren't interested in substance? Mm. And it's like you sort of did that backwards almost. You got into circles that were uplifting sensitivity and connection to self. And then all of a sudden, the sober curious work came second. Is that an Mm. accurate assessment?
2: Well, Yeah, they were kind of hand in hand. Like I first started questioning my drinking when I was still living in the UK, um, which is a very, very kind of, um, everyday drinking culture. I guess I'll put it like that. Drinking is like the norm. Um, people drink a lot all the time and it's very, very normalized and very few people really question that I began questioning it then. Um, And it was, it coincided with me discovering meditation and yoga, which are often the kind of entry points to people on a more kind of holistic wellness path, I suppose. And that came through, through my journalism, I was working for a women's magazine and these were subjects that started to be of interest to people. And so I began to investigate them and yeah, I didn't put the puzzle pieces together at at the time, but it was exactly the same time as I had my first meditation session. that I really began to question, is my drinking really serving me? (laughs) Very Mm -hmm. innocent very internal, private kind of inquiry that began to spring up for me. And then a year or so later, I moved to New York, by which point I'd become very interested in the subject matter and decided that I wanted to launch my own blog, The Numinous, um, kind of looking into investigating these different areas, presenting them in a way that kind of felt accessible and interesting to perhaps a younger generation. This is around 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, Astrology was of a particular interest to me at the time and tarot and these sorts of esoteric tools and so that move to new york beginning to investigate these different subject matters and kind of introduce myself to and enter into lots of circles where they were being practiced this the inquiry around sobriety had already started for me but it was finding those spaces that had a two-fold kind of effect number one yeah there was no alcohol being served i was meeting people who were just not really interested or if they did drink it was Drinking in a very different way to the drinking that that had been done in the sober in the the circles I was moving in in the UK, um, and then the second kind of like second layer in a way was well like yeah I was engaging with a lot of healing practices that were helping me to look at some of the stuff that I had been drinking over that I wasn't even really aware was there you know mm-hmm. my drinking I remember when I first kind of really. I first started talking to friends about the fact I wanted to drink less and that I wasn't really, I was questioning my drinking and yeah, I would get a lot of, but you don't have a problem. And then I would also get a lot of, but you only drink to have more fun. You're just drinking <laughs> to have fun. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with wanting to have more fun, but there's always another side. There's another side to every coin, right? <laughs> so drinking to have more fun. And I write about this and So be Curious why was I not already having fun? Why did I feel like I needed to numb something down, block something out in order to kind of turn up the fun volume in my life, especially Mm. a substance which does have so many toxic side effects. So that was kind of, yeah, I was, I was finding myself in these circles where alcohol wasn't available and where I was also experiencing healing and connection in a way that I hadn't before. So it was, yeah, it was a kind of a perfect storm. <laughs> mm, and it's funny, mm-hmm. like, so the first book came out, by which point I was really, I had already started hosting events on this subject of Sober Curious and wanted to that to be my second book. And it wasn't immediately obvious to my publisher that the two would kind of, the one would follow the other. Whereas for me, they're absolutely interlinked. Sober Curious wouldn't exist without the,
0: the, the kind of experiences like Document in my first book. Mm, hmm Definitely. I think I, to, to double back on something you just said, Dan and I often say that to each other when we first got together of why aren't we having fun? We didn't use those exact words, but we would be like, I'm not sure I want to go there because I'll drink too much, because I'll mm. need to sort of tamp down or I'll be in a conversation I'm not interested in, or I'll be out past hours that make me feel good the next day, or no, that's not really my vibe. You know, the, those were all the subtexts of saying like, nah, because I would need to be altered to sort of fit in there. And that's not cool for me anymore. Right. You know, to like actually yeah. be able to say that out loud. No, I would have way too many drinks and would make me feel good. And I want to get up and do amazing things the next day. Exactly. You know.
2: And the reason I'm having those drinks is because that's actually not, bring, it's not bringing me joy. It's not, ju- it's not bringing me something that I that experienced isn't aligned with where I'm at anymore. Yeah. Which is, which is absolutely fine. And maybe it was once, and that's absolutely fine too. You know?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's such a profound question to ask is like, why do I need to alter to cope? Mm. You know, mm. even if it's just for, to have fun. Exactly. Yeah. Because <laughs> like we think about self medication,
2: like if you know you're self medicating, mm-hmm. then that's seen as kind of like bad drinking or problem drinking. But to what extent is like, Drinking to mask social anxiety or to, yeah, like mm. fit in with a crowd where you don't feel like you fit in. Isn't that also self medicating? Yes.
0: Yes. I agree 100%. There's <laughs> <laughs> just so many layers <laughs> of understanding yeah. the depth of self medicating, but we can't really yeah. do that until we realize um, the sort of what makes us hum. Exactly. And another yeah.
2: big one that's coming up for people kind of as we move out of the pandemic thinking people are thinking about travel vacations these sorts of things and I know this because I've had a couple of journalists wanting to speak to me about it recently a lot of you know drinking and kind of like downtime vacation time relaxation time sort of go hand in hand and that can be one of the biggest stumbling blocks for people and I one of the one of the big realizations early on was like Jesus I don't literally do not know how to relax without altering my, without literally lobotomizing myself without alcohol because mm-hmm. I'm running on such a kind of, I'm running such a program of productivity and I'm so addicted to that, to that. I'm addicted, more addicted to my productivity mentality than I am to this substance. I'm used the substance as my solution for burnout.
0: Mm-hmm. And yet it's
2: actually only depleting my system even more. So that's just gonna crash and burn obviously right. so a big thing for me has been learning how to relax and do nothing mm,
0: mm-hmm. and I
2: even feel guilty kind of saying that <laughs> because so deeply entrenched is the kind of like subconscious belief that I'm only of value to the world when I'm producing something constantly mm-hmm that I only deserve taking up space on the planet if I'm producing something constantly. And this is something you write about in your book, you know, the hustle, the hustle flow mm-hmm. binary. It's
0: I think we complete the binary. <laughs> I, like I'm honestly on the other side, like, why I am like I working it. to make money to live my life? Why can't I just eat a plant out of my yard? Like... <laughs> right. Right. So like gear up almost to be in that right. sort of productivity state. But you produce so much. You are like,
2: you know, you're always kind of creating and, but you're, yeah, this, it's coming from a different place perhaps. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But neither is like better or worse because I do sometimes have to really self-motivate, you know, because I could be Mm. like, oh, I just won't do the podcast this week or Mm. next week. Oh, I'll do it (laughs) in a month. (laughs) right. (laughs) yeah but i think that that uh, addiction to productivity and not knowing how to relax and then you were saying that you find that this substance is adding to sort of the depletion of your physical system is a crossroads for so many people and we're the burnout conversation is huge right now and it's like the mm. ways that we are relaxing are actually contributing to the uh, no gas in the tank for our physical bodies you know mm. so mm. like obviously we have to be able to learn how to not emotionally disconnect when we go to reach for something that's actually creating relaxation. But our minds are pushed so far to the edge that we just want the whole thing to turn off.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And so we want a really quick off switch when actually
0: sorry, you were you go ahead. <laughs> it's like something that happens uh, with my partner a lot where he just goes, 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 goes. And I have to check in like, hey, remember, it's supposed to take 10 minutes every hour because we work together. You know, l- other little techniques to not push the attention to the edge of the earth. So then right. it just, you know, lights up the joint or whatever it may be. Because right. there isn't that little moment to go, oh, well, maybe I'd do better if I went to a spin class or you know, there, there isn't even that level of openness with ourselves sometimes in the addiction to productivity.
2: Right. Exactly. So when looking, so a question people will ask me often is like, but how do I switch off on a Friday night? Like, How do I switch into weekend mode? All I really feel like I can offer them is like having a regular, having a regular meditation practice will help you. A half hour yoga every day will help you, but I have to Mm -hmm. give a caveat, but it's not going to like, it's not going to give you the instant switch off switch that you're used to you're essentially when you engage with those practices, you're retraining, you're creating new neural pathways in your brain that are going to prevent you hopefully from reaching the point of burnout in the first place, mm-hmm. but it's not, and I really have to kind of, it's not going to happen overnight. <laughs> this is not, this is, and again, like alcohol is a is, um, very useful substance in our kind of like quick fix society. You know, it's a really quick fix.
0: Mm -hmm. for feeling
2: overworked for feeling unhappy for feeling depressed it's a really
0: quick fix but it's not sustainable Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's in the conquering fomo section where you're like don't you want to get smarter don't you want to have more gray matter in your brain you know i'm like yeah fomo for no more gray matter like (laughs) (laughs) like if you go to do the other things exactly that accumulates like intensely over time yes
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And they talk about there's a fantastic, brilliant book for anyone who's interested in the kind of like brain science part of addiction. A book that I quote several times called The Biology of Desire.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It talks all about the desire function of the brain and like the way that dopamine works and stuff and how that is what is at the root and what fuels kind of addiction. And as such, Addiction is normative for the human brain. Like our brains are designed to become addicted to things that feel good and offer us some kind of like reward.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Alcohol is one of those things, um, but it also really helped for me to kind of remove that some of the the shame and the stigma that comes with the addiction is a disease model. You know, oh, and yeah. again, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a brain scientist. And the addiction is a disease model really works for some people because it gives them almost like a um, a diagnosis to like, okay, so I, I have a disease. I actually can't use this thing. That's like, that's the the bottom line for me. But again, I feel like the thinking about ourselves as diseased can be something else that we want to numb out or medicate, you know, it's, um, and so in, in the book, Mark Lewis, who is a former um, opioids addict turned brain scientist. He was so fascinated with how this work works, but he shows that in recovery, the cognitive effort of being sober curious, not just removing the substance, but the cognitive effort of actually doing the work to join the dots as to like, why am I using this? And what's it, what is, what am I perceiving it to do for me? Actually helps to grow brain, grow gray, gray matter beyond the baseline level that you started with. Mm -hmm. So essentially, yes, my argument there is being sober curious does make you smarter. (laughs)
0: It makes you smarter. (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, I think that's a brilliant comparison in in sort of addiction at large, even if it's to our own self-defeating thoughts. If we're not willing to question those and really build that level of uh, awareness, suspension or contemplation, then exact same issue. You know, mm-hmm. there was a time early on in my path when I realized I was using my spiritual practices as an addiction technique. And I like made a rule for myself six months, no asana, no meditation. Then we get to see the real animal that you are, you know, in all of her fumblings out in the world because I wasn't relying on that in a way to sort of fix my disease state or right. my lack of awareness or it, 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 anything can become a magic bullet in
2: that absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. As such, I always feel like, you know, many people who have questioned their drinking will attempt moderation and will be familiar with the pattern of like, I'll only drink at the weekends or I'll never have more than two drinks or, um, you know, I'll quit for a month to prove myself. I'm not addicted. I think you anything that you find yourself feeling the need to moderate, there's, I don't know, There's like some, there's some interesting kind of information there about your relationship to that thing. I've done that with social media. I talk all the time about how I only go on social media Monday to Friday. I delete it off my phone at the weekends. And it took me a while to realize that's exactly the same thinking that I used to have around alcohol. So with social media, for example, my options are either like, don't do it completely. That's abstinence. And I did take Mm -hmm. a year off Of the numinous Instagram account, while I really kind of like worked on some of the emotional stuff that's behind my need for validation, that's behind my codependency. Mm -hmm. These are the reasons I have issues with social media because I have a validation addiction and I'm codependent. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I feel this intense need to kind of manage how everybody sees me and manage everybody's emotional responses to everything I say. So my work is not how do I moderate social media? My work is like how do I become less codependent and how Mm -hmm. do I stop needing validation from everybody. I mean, to tell me that I'm a, that I'm a right, good person, you know, right. Ideally I'll get to a point where, yeah, I can keep my social media apps on the phone and just share as, and when, in a way that's really true and authentic to me. I, I'm not there yet, but that's kind of like part of my work, you mm-hmm. know?
0: Yeah, sort of in the back end of, of a lot of my client space, I see food, scrolling, and substances really sort of hitting the same. Mm-hmm. It's like whack-a-mole in the brain almost. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with those Good three way things, of putting it, <laughs> and they kind of switch places, mm. for sure. Mm. Yeah. I yeah. think food was, food
2: was one with me for a long time. And I definitely feel that that's not, yeah, that's just, again, like, I never thought I'd get to a point where I'd be like, that's just not something that is an issue or that I even think about or feel that I have that kind of like stickiness around anymore. So I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. But it's all it's all the same sorts of tools and the same sorts of mental processes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is something too that I, I'm... I'm just curious on your thoughts from like looking from the outside in, right? I feel like you go into these longer creative processes and you like a, you know, a year or six months or three months to birth like a big writing project. And that is difficult when you're, when you're so immersed in something and then you want to share it and get validation, but you can't yet because you can't really put it out in public. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> I've felt that gap in the social media space. Of, mm. I, I can't really put my work out in public right now. And so I'm wondering, does that check kind of the addiction to validation at all? Or do you feel like a struggle in that space or you're so immersed in like the book you're writing now? that Well, it's really
2: interesting. So like with my, with the two books that you've mentioned, I was kind of shared, they began very much in the public domain, like the numinous, I mean, material girl mystical world grew out of the numinous, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I launched it in 2012 coming up in 10 years. I cannot believe it, which has now become numinous books. As you know, yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, there's been so much evolution just within that platform, but I had been, you know, blogging, writing, hosting events, running a popular social media account on all things numinous for, okay, my book came out in 2017. So five years before that book came out, mm-hmm. three years, two, two and a half years before I started kind of like writing it, got the deal. With Sober Curious, I started hosting events beginning of 2016, public facing events where hundreds of people were showing up um, before the book came out, very end of 2018. So again, like almost three years I'd been public Mm, with mm -hmm. it before the book came out. The new book that I'm writing, no one knows anything about it. And (laughs) I'm so deeply in it. And it's by far the biggest project I've ever embarked on both on a personal level and also a research kind of journalistic piece and so this is this is a challenge for me now yeah Because not only am I not kind of getting because in a way getting feedback which is mingled in with validation mm-hmm. but getting feedback from the public sphere about something I'm working on is really valuable in helping me um just kind of like grapple with my theories like put join the dots kind of like see what resonates with people that's all been already valuable
1: so i'm not able to
2: get that with my current project so it's much it feels probably much bigger because it's all very internal currently Um, but i also and this is the other thing and you'll understand this and again you wrote about this i can't remember which section but it was one of the exercises i think in transitory nature thinking about each creative project that we birth then has a life in the world that I am responsible for and I am the, um, guardian and the caretaker of. So we have these two projects, which are big and take up a lot of time and energy and require a lot of nurturance out in the world that I'm the custodian of in a way. And there's an, there's another one coming. <laughs> And I know as soon as it's out there in the public sphere, that's a whole other piece of me that's going to need to be dedicated to this project. So I'm kind of biding my time for when I start kind of talking about it publicly.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
1: It's tricky.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Like to understand the stewardship of it out in the world, you know, but stewardship, that's the word I was actually looking for (laughs) in like your heart of hearts. And I'd love to hear a complete honest answer is part of you sort of stepping away from that, not fully from the other work, but really ready to move into a new iteration of this is really what I'm chewing on in my self identity. And I'd love to get other people involved in the conversation.
2: Yes. Yes. Yes, definitely. However, that said I'm extremely passionate about the projects I'm working on with numinous books Mm, And that now feels like a really great sustainable kind of business for me to actually use my gifts in a way that I know is of deep service where I'm not having to be the figurehead and I'm not having to be kind of like front and center of it. So be curious is, um, continues to be of such amazing service in the world that I'm yeah, deeply committed still to that. And Mm -hmm. I think it you know, my publisher is very, having watched what I've done with those two projects. So we're really excited to see the movement building that happens around this new project. And actually part of me is like, I'd kind of like this just to be a book and Mm. for it to be out in the world and not feel like I have to create all these bells and whistles to kind of like, I don't know, birth into the world. Um, Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting in a bit of a messy middle moment with all of that stuff at the moment. I'm just really deeply committed to getting the manuscript kind of done, at least the first draft of it. And next year, see how I'm feeling about kind of speaking about it in the world um, and what kinds of other offerings I might create to mm-hmm. kind of help people interact with it, whether it's events or retreats. Or I am recording my research interviews as a podcast series. So we'll Mm, see how that goes and what that becomes, but, um, that just felt like good, um, pranic economy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, really like how much energy and time do I have for this project, the writing and creating of it and the marketing of it. I can kind of double up there Mm
1: -hmm. by
2: recording my research interviews and I'll have that podcast series as a part of the promotional piece. Um, So yeah, trying to get smart about it and like, just be really aware of my capacity um, in terms of my energy and and resources. Yeah. Maybe do things a bit differently because I did get completely burnt out with the numinous and with sober curious, you know, it was really go, 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 give it everything, everything, everything. And Mm -hmm. they've been really successful. So like I have a model there for like, burnout is the way to go. And I actually
0: really, I want to try and do it differently with this other one. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, obviously I know a little bit about the topic, but I I have a feeling that people are going to be, I don't want to say up in arms, but engaged, Mm -hmm. very, very engaged, you know? So maybe it won't need as much sort of scaffolding or like PR planning and it will be like, Kind of like a mosquito to the blue light. Like,
2: <laughs> Wait, am I the mosquito with the blue light, or am the I the book? The, the, the bitch? book, the blue light. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, okay, okay. Up in arms, yeah. I mean a hugely triggering subject for me personally, like I'm being triggered by my own writing constantly, <laughs> which is, um,
0: That's interesting, how I feel about. which is
2: interesting thinking yeah. about how it may be received in the world. Um, and maybe part of my reticence around like being really out and proud with it is self-protective. Like, can I just put this out and let it be out there and kind of retain some distance from it and just, <sighs> but again, I mean, Aries, 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 like I can't not, I
0: can't not put this stuff out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you got to go there. That's yeah. what's going to give it the oomph and be so amazing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And
2: I think part of and I and I don't think it's any coincidence that I'm doing this kind of codependency work
0: mm-hmm.
2: now, and I've been thinking a lot about your private public um, binary. Yeah. Whilst engaging with this, because. I've often said, oh, I don't want to have to develop the thick skin that it takes to be really kind of like out there and active on social media. But what if it wasn't about developing a thick skin? What if it was about being so true in myself and what I have to offer that I can, I can take the, the criticism, not as criticism, but just as like a way to engage really richly and deeply with this subject matter and to progress the conversation that I want to, that I want to put out into the world. Mm -hmm. You know, what if I didn't take that as what if I didn't take criticism as a personal attack because I no longer am dependent on other people's validation or approval mm-hmm. what if
0: I mean that to me is like amazingly rich work yeah I mean I think that's a brilliant question and the standard probably needs to be 75% of the time you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you <laughs> because I, yeah. I lo- like love that idea it's kind of like a rise of the phoenix process in engaging without outward validation you know and at the same time we can't control what someone else hurls at us if it's actually deeply engaging with our work or they are really engaging with a self-identity aspect that is coming up in them but is actually mm-hmm. like yeah, because some of, it the is, work. <laughs> some of it is abuse some of it is abuse and some yeah. of it is an attack
2: and that's mm-hmm. real and there is a need for self-protection in those instances yeah
0: yeah but I think that all in all, there, there is a level of like 75% of the time, kind of like strength and maturity, like spiritual maturity, not sort of status quo maturity of like, okay, cool. Thanks for the feedback. We really don't have the same view. Yeah. Can you tell me more about yours? And it's tough on social media because that really isn't the platform for that. That's why I'm also so curious about sort of the entourage that's going to accompany your third book because there Mm. is so much space for deep conversation with those Mm. topics and Mm. I'm just going to say my opinion. Again, it's my opinion. I, I don't know if social media is the space for that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
2: I think you're absolutely right. And so in the, at the moment, at least 50% of my brain power, if not more, is kind of deep in my manuscript.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Next year, once the manuscript is handed in and I'm just working on edits, I plan to, I'm really excited to engage very strategically with thinking about ways of building community, audience, having reach, having these conversations that are not on social media. I think there have, we've discussed this, there have, there have got to be ways, um, yeah, to, to find, not find an audience, but to bring this book to the people who it's really gonna resonate with mm-hmm. in a way that is rich and nuanced and deep and profound that aren't social media Mm they have got to be. And I'm really excited to, like I said,
0: just really engage with strategically with finding that path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It'll be awesome to see what you do and what you unfold. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So a little bit of a pivot. I think one of the awesome parts that has been very profound for me too in my own spiritual life that you highlight in like chapter seven or eight of uh, mystical girl material world is tracking your cycle and understanding mm. the deep effects of your cycle on your mind stream, your creativity, you know, even self-compassion, how you're going to show up from these four to seven days, you know, and I think that that is, I just love to have a bit of a conversation around cycle and creativity and Really understanding your own as opposed to if you Googled what ovulation is supposed to be happening or emotionally how it's supposed to be behaving in your body. And, Mm. you know, if you still are using that on a regular basis and how your cycle affects your creativity.
2: Absolutely. And it's very fascinating. This period, this pandemic period, my cycle has regulated for the first time in my life which um, I can't remember if we've spoken about this, but it's been very, very interesting. Obviously I, I was very interested and in, wrote a chapter on this in Material Girl Mystical World. And it was always a deep frustration to me that my cycle was so irregular. And I found ways to to work with that and like ways to look at that. But knowing but it's been just like this, a a revelation to actually be able to plan my life and my creative life, especially around my cycle. Finally, at the age of 45, when I'm supposed to be like coming to perimenopause and it's supposed to be Mm, ebbing off. It'll still be there. Exactly. (laughs) But it's like, okay, good. I actually get to like practice this now. So I have been taking writing weeks in a cabin upstate. My friend has a place that I've been renting once a month. And I've planned those weeks with the time when I know my mind stream to be at the most clear and inspired, um, which for me, and it's funny cause I did, I kind of planned the whole year around that. And then I had one cycle that was particularly short. So I'm kind of like trying to get a week back <laughs> with my planning, but yeah, around day eight, day nine. It's like this, the, the, the connection, the creative channel is so open and so clear. If I'm not writing on those days, I make sure I'm taking down tons of notes on my notes app and capturing whatever I can in those days, because that's when it's the most, um, yeah, it just comes through. It's not that what comes through is better. It's just effortless. And there's just a flow that's there, but that I have to kind of dig a lot harder for Mm -hmm. And spend a lot more time with. And again, like this is partly my productivity addiction. It's like, oh, if I can get done in three days on days eight through 10, what would take me like a week on days like 20 20 through 27, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then I'll pick those days for it. And that's part of me operating as a one woman band entrepreneur with these three big projects right? that Mm -hmm. I manage as as an individual person, you know, Mm -hmm. so Mm, yeah, it seems um,
0: more elevated capacity, not addictive. okay. Yes, yeah, you're right. More like yeah, understanding what it is, and it, yeah. it's
2: kind of like, um, yeah, it's an example of how being very attuned with ourselves and our needs and our body and our psychology can help us to really kind of like do the things we set out to do in the world in a way that feels effortless and easeful and, and joyful, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's been really great to actually be able to experiment with that this year. Although it's interesting that this, the upstate cabin's only available until the end of September. So I'm doubling up and doing an extra week, which is going to be over my kind of menstruation week. So I'm very curious actually to see what other richness comes forth you know, during that yeah. time. Cause I was thinking maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe I should cancel it. But then I'm actually like, well, no, it'll be interesting to see what it, maybe there'll be like a, and that week <laughs> I'm going to be writing perhaps the most emotional chapter of the entire book.
1: Mm-hmm. And again,
2: coincidentally or not, that happens to be the week when perhaps I might be the most tender or the most internal, um, Yeah, but uh, yeah, and and I think a lot of the, um, I used to suffer really badly from PMS because I would, because it would always be a bit extended Mm -hmm. and I'd never really know when, you know, the cervix would drop and the clouds would part and everything would be okay
0: again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So
2: just this kind of like this tender kind of tender hooks feeling would just drag for days and days and days and i'd get slowly more and more irritable and introverted and pissed with the world mm-hmm. um but actually now that i m- know clearly more clearly like when that's going to happen i don't notice myself getting so having such strong pms symptoms um and there's an increased sensitivity but I actually am now able to give myself permission to just kind of be in that, that sensitive space and not be annoyed with myself for not being able to perform, if that makes sense
0: oh, during yeah. those times. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, that makes perfect sense. And and more emotional regulation of, okay, this is a couple day period. Yeah. I'm not going off the rails. I'm not in the deep end. I'm not going to have to work so hard to get it back. You know, often exactly. to Dan, I'm like, but six hours from bleeding. We're in the countdown. (laughs) Don't worry. (laughs) Don't worry. (laughs) I remember
2: I was on, um, my friend Alexandra Roxo did this year long program that I had, had kind of joined last year and it ended up having to all be online, but it actually all worked out fine. And there was one, I can't remember how this was shared, but one woman was just sharing. She'd found this photographic project that actually showed the cervix like beginning mm-hmm. to bleed and drop and beginning to bleed. It's just so fascinating to connect with the physiology of that process. Cause obviously we don't ever, we can't see that
1: mm-hmm. happening,
2: but to be able to visualize it now, if maybe it is feeling a little more drawn out or like just to be able to kind of visualize that in meditation and just, I don't know, just send sort of love and like an out and exhale to that part of my body and be like, okay, it's safe. We can let go. Like, Mm -hmm. here we go. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Has been really has been really interesting. I can't remember what it's called, but like there's a website where you can look at all these pictures of women's cervixes bleeding. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kind of amazing.
0: Yeah, no, that is amazing. It's like a big, big meta shift around. Oh, I'm so full. It's not all mine. It's literally the whole cycle of creation. I'm so full. I'm so full. That's often the thought I have days before I bleed, 72 hours before I bleed. I'm just like. God, I'm so full. (laughs) Right. Sometimes that's not a bad thing. Sometimes that's actually access to a lot of things, you know, a lot of different intel.
2: Yeah, exactly. Mm. I often really had the sense of like, just a fearful kind of holding, like a holding on, like, if I let this go, everything will be lost, Mm. you know? And so for um, for me, the regularity of my cycle signals as well that some subconscious or some work some shift has happened um where I'm no longer feeling the need to cling Mm -hmm. out of fear that there's no more to come behind that you know that this is this is all I've got I better hold on to it yeah which has been um yeah a lot of my again around the kind of lack abundance binary (laughs) a Mm -hmm. lot of my
0: my um I've had a lot of fear around the lack end of the binary Mm mm-hmm you said something really brilliant and sober, curious. That you said it really particularly, and I know how carefully you pick like adjectives yes. or adverbs to sort of color the whole sentence. But it was something of, I finally am, haven't been uh, altered by birth control, like I'm kind right. of sober from hormone altering substances. Right. Yeah. And I was like, ah. That is a whole nother conversation that could actually be inside Sober Curious. But yeah. it was one sentence, but I could have had a whole chapter on that. <laughs>
2: it might have been in the first book. I don't know if I remember writing about that. In oh, maybe it was years, the book. Maybe bro. I did.
0: Maybe I did.
2: Oh, maybe I'm know. mixing
0: up the books. <laughs> but it was one particular sentence where I was like, oh, what a brilliant way to look at substance, not just the things right. that we see as, um, like, I'm using air quotes, like, uh, addictive substances or schedule yeah. one, or you know, yeah. legal or illegal, but even um, all the ways we chemically alter our body. Yeah. Yeah. Birth and that separates absolutely us one. from our cycle so much.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I haven't used hormonal birth control since my early 20s. Same. Half, half my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it was like felt... a
0: big, big, awesome shift for me.
2: Yeah. And I've Mm -hmm. heard so many women share similarly, Mm -hmm. but not even having been on it for so long, they didn't even realize how altered they were by it. Mm -hmm. And again, this is not by no means, if it works for you and you feel comfortable and good with it, then great. But it didn't work for me. Um, And I think, you know, I, I, my grandmother on my other side died from cervical cancer and I just I don't know, there's something for something kind of mystical in thinking about my lineage and thinking about the sensitivity and the kind of issues that I've experienced in that area with just a regular cycle. Like, like I said, my whole life, um, I really want to, 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 to heal it. You know, I, I don't want to tamper with it. I want to just let it be mm-hmm. itself. And yeah, so for, for me, my
0: decision around not using hormonal birth control was around that as well. hmm I also found that it brought up amazing questions around my responsibility with my body and its ability to carry a child and that I really needed to confront that responsibility in a way that felt powerful and intense and layered. And that was my responsibility, you know, not a substance's responsibility.
2: Mm, Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's definitely part of it too. Mm-hmm. So let's talk astrology, I think, a little bit to sort of wrap up, if Yay. you're okay with that. Yeah. I never get to talk about astrology because most of my podcasts are around so I'm curious. And
2: let's face it, the majority of people don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> but I love
0: talking about astrology, as you know. So in your first book, you have a chapter on karma, dharma, and natal chart. I know. How did I figure that out after? <laughs> which I love, 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 love. Right. So I'd love to hear your personal understanding of a few placements in your chart that have really influenced your Dharma out in the world.
2: Oh, I discover new ones all the time. (laughs) I've been studying my chart deeply for 10 years and still like I've only just recently started looking at, wow, I have Neptune right on my ascendant. And I think we actually Mm -hmm. discussed this, but like, Neptune is such a blind spot in so many of our charts because it is like the, you know, it's kind of like this, this murkiness, this sort of muddying influence in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's our channel. It's our connection to divine wisdom, divine knowledge. And it's like right there on my ascendant. And I think that I was describing this with one of my book doula clients the other day. She's writing a very poetic manuscript and it's coming through just in kind of snippets and, and vignettes. That's
0: cool.
2: And she, we, we, we began by trying to kind of work out a structure together. And she was just like, I just can't, I just, no, (laughs) she's a Pisces. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, I was like, okay, so here's the thing I'm going to create. I'm just going to create a container based on our conversations. You just flow the stuff to me and I will flow it into that structure. Mm -hmm. And we did the first kind of round of this and she was just stunned by how I'd been able to you know, find a place for all of these pieces that kind of made sense in this like sort of memoirish chronological structure that I created. And I found myself saying to her, yeah, I kind of, I work jointly with kind of intuition and logic. They're kind of interchangeable for me. They work, Mm -hmm. I I kind of, it's intuitive, but it's entirely logical. And I think that Neptune on the ascendant for me is like, I have access to my intuition in a way that is also, supremely logical and linear Mm -hmm. what's your ascendant Sagittarius Sagittarius yeah yeah Yeah. so Neptune in Sagittarius on the ascendant is kind of like a channeling down of wisdom from from the unseen from the unknown from spirit in a way that kind of like I don't know makes a lot of sense is very teachable Sagittarius Mm -hmm. you know yeah so that's definitely something that I've been connecting to recently it's funny I used to often think I used to feel like oh Neptune's so wishy-washy that's not me I'm really direct because I am like you know Aries but also guess what that that Neptune is trining my son and Mercury in Aries mm-hmm. so it's actually kind of yeah I'm able to direct in a very kind of Aries focused way this Neptunian sort of um, spiritual connection spiritual mm-hmm. understanding of the world.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I kind of see it like (laughs) three telephone poles, the trine, you know, and then you're like locating spirit. Yeah. And and then kind of like channeling it in this
2: very kind of Aries, which is, you know, very progressive and there's a lot of leadership vibe. The other one that I really, um, yeah, that's really been very profound and strong for me the past decade while I've been on this path here in the US, I suppose, is that I have Pluto on my midheaven. Mm. you know? And mm. I mean, I really, I can look back, I look back on different eras in my life and I really feel like I've lived 10 lives at this oh. point, <laughs> you know, yeah. my, my personal evolutions have been so intense and so radical that, um, yeah. And I feel like that's been very much lived in, in public in a way being on my mid heaven, like my work in the world, my career is very much linked to my personal transformations and personal evolutions. Mm-hmm. You know.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but Sober <laughs> Curious and the third book, I feel like you're really good at starting a little fire in the basement, that eventually gonna sort of burn the whole thing down. But you do that in like a very respectful way, well researched way. But the intention yes. is kind of like a little bit of arson. Just a little. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. My Aries loves that. My Aries is like, yes yeah, start the fire. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, it is like and it's definitely not comfortable.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think this is part of like why do why why did I find turn to alcohol at different parts of my life? Like it's not comfortable being me. It's not comfortable being feeling like you're in constant evolution, you know, and con- and in public with it as well. It's definitely like, yeah, not comfortable because then I have all the cancer, like the cancer moon, which is just so porous and so empathetic and so kind of like feels all of the feelings, like very mm. very sensitive. So I have like mm. a I have that's have a,
0: your weapon in public, private, binary tell me more (laughs) like cancer as the you know noticing oh is that attack on me or is that great criticism or is that something I'd really like to include in my own inner dialogue or that sensitivity of knowing which is which Mm. yeah the discernment yeah that's interesting that could be very cool Yeah. yeah, But I was just listening to it like, wow, karma and dharma and your natal chart. And then in the chapter that you wrote and understanding sort of how to lean into different parts of your chart and as they sort of roll with you in your long-term transformation and your service out in the world. I mean, obviously I think that's awesome and super valuable. And then it can really get astrology out of the space of um, woe is me, or here's what's wrong with me, or here's how I have to fix myself, or here's the only way I can see the world is through me, right? That type of a uh, dialogue that we sometimes hear with astrology.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think um, <clears throat> what I try to do with that chapter and that the way I was, the way I've always approached astrology is to look at like, everything in our chart is a strength and a weakness, right? Yeah. Depending on the context for which it's, in which it's being expressed, which is terminology that I got from your book. Like what is the context mm-hmm. and what is, a, what can I lean on here? And what would it serve me to perhaps not minimize, but like what can I kind of put to one side for a moment and which, knowing my chart really well, which aspects of my karma, or is it appropriate to bring forward? And what can be, you know, what in the external world can I use to support bringing forward this part of my chart, this part of my, myself? Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Okay. One last final question for you. How can Kelly Catrone be Amma's (laughs) agent? I was like the shit you find out when you're like on the outside and then you know I was I was laughing so hard right because oh I'm God. like 10 years younger than you so I watched all the reality shows with her okay. you know, yeah I mean, yeah it's like wow that's actually awesome that I now know yeah. that that teacher changed her life you know absolutely I yeah. mean
2: when I first moved to New York it was very interesting there were two scorpionic influences that kind of like immediately just pounced on me here I was I was quite a respected and well-known journalist in the UK I had quite a kind of like high profile position and that came with a lot of media access and so these two scorpionic kind of hung in on me it was Kelly Catrone and Gabby Bernstein mm-hmm. it was a very interesting time
0: oh,
1: when yeah. I
2: really um yeah, my intro to New York kind of through the lens of these two very kind of like powerful (sighs) heat-seeking missiles, let's say. (laughs) was very interesting. Um, And it was, yeah, here are two individuals who are very deep on the spiritual path, but also very, very kind of heavy on the promo path. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really got to see that up close and personal. And Kelly particularly, like she really yeah, she kind of introed me to a lot of people and was very supportive of my project at the time and she was how I was introduced to Amma and mm-hmm. she took me to Amma and like we skipped the line because it's yeah. like <laughs> it's like the the VIP room it's like at, but you the Am- missed the ball
0: Am- and you missed all the kirtan, but I guess well, it. exactly? <laughs> and the
2: whole the lining up is part of the is part of it. It's part of the process, you know. There isn't a shortcut to that and like I have been to AMA since and kind of lined up eight hours to get my hug and it felt much more authentic is the wrong word, but it felt more, yeah, this is how it's done. This is how you do it, you know, but it was kind of fabulous as well.
1: Yeah. Getting on awesome. the
2: guest list, getting to the v- the AMA VIP room. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a VIP room I would definitely sign up for. Yeah. Oh, I get it. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for this awesome conversation. You know, I respect you and your work out in the world, and I love how open you are with your own transformations and the many lives you've lived. And so, you know, I I really found you on the internet just by chance almost. I hadn't read any of your work, and I was like, that's it. And then after I'd already signed the contract, I started reading your work, and I was like, good, good. That is it. <laughs> yeah Yeah. and so I just really respect you and thank you so much for being with us on the Lily podcast this week
2: thanks for having me on it's been really great to um yeah to chat to you today and thanks for engaging with my work so deeply I I really appreciate and value it
1: Thank you for listening to the Live Lightly podcast. If you loved this episode, please download and subscribe. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear from you and your main takeaways from this episode. Tag us on Instagram and Facebook at LiveLightly underscore. We will then reshare your takeaways and insights. We love bringing you these in-depth conversations. Please remember the suggestions of our guests and hosts are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as actionable advice. This podcast is a resource for general information and education only. Live Lightly is not liable for your decisions to implement information from this podcast.